Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 4th. I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the West Coast of the United States. I hope you're all doing well, as Mark so famously said in his uh, classic book about the 1848 revolutions. History repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce. Actually, I don't think it was about the 1948 revolutions. I think it was about the resurrection of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. Anyway, Marx famously said history repeats itself. He borrowed the phrase, or he said he borrowed the phrase from Hegel, first as tragedy, then as farce. And Marx's remarks came to mind today on November the 4th as we work out the implications of the American elections um, on Tuesday. Uh, America seems to repeat, American history seems to repeat itself endlessly, this endless cycle. First, there was the tragedy, and now we have an endless cycle of farces. Uh, Charles Blow reports in the New York Times in his column, white racial anxiety strikes again. Again and again and again, of course, and white racial anxiety raised its ugly head in the elections. Uh, lots of talk, um, politely covered up, I guess, in the language of schooling, which resurrects the awful history of racism in America. Meanwhile, the Washington Post leads with stories of the 2017 Charlottesville rally of neo-Nazis telling the group that we're all in this together. Um, We're also reminded in the post of the increasing inequalities, particularly in our age of COVID between white and black America. Uh, I had Chris Matthews, the MSNBC, uh, ex-MSNBC talking head on the show yesterday And we talked a little bit about race in America, and he described it as the Grand Canyon of American history and politics, meaning, of course, that it can't be changed because the Grand Canyon is geology. It can't be changed. And I was watching MSNBC last night. And again, it's all about race. It's all about this ongoing, tragic, farcical conversation about race in America. We've done so many shows about it. Um, And we're back on it today with a really interesting new book, When the Stars Began to Fall by Theodore R. Johnson, uh, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promises, or not the promises, the promise of America, a singular promise. Uh, It's an optimistic book. And I hope uh, Ted, who's talking to me from uh, Virginia, can cheer me up today. Uh, (laughs) Ted, am I wrong to be so cynical that this thing repeats itself endlessly. Uh, The latest chapter um, were the elections on Tuesday, lots of dressed up racist talk. What's going on here? Are you as optimistic today as you were when you were writing your book, When the Stars Began to Fall? Um, Well, first, thanks for having me. And, And I will say that the optimism is not gone, but the, uh, the light shines a little dimmer than uh, a little less bright than it was, you know, maybe a year and a half ago when I was putting the finishing touches on this book. Um, Look, I think what we saw in Virginia, especially Virginia yesterday, but really across the country, 
was a reenactment of the kinds of political strategies that have been employed in the United States since, certainly since the Civil War. And what these strategies usually do are try to exploit racial differences within the body politic of America and um, in, in hopes of winning seats of power and, or holding on to those seats of power. I will say, um, some will disagree with me, but I will say a lot of the race, racist or racial appeals in our electoral politics are not born from a place of hatred, but they're born from a place of political expedience, which is to say folks are willing to do just about whatever it takes to win elections and then to, and to hold on to power. So what we saw in Virginia yesterday, in particular in the governor's race, a lot of folks have are thinking that Virginia is going to be, is, is basically a, um, a look ahead to what 2024 could look like in the presidential election. What happens, so goes America as goes Virginia or however the, the saying would, would work here. And it's because they're a Republican candidate who was not full on Trump supporter, but was sort of whispered to be a Trump supporter in sort of the right circles, he would sort of nod his tip his hat at Trump. But publicly, he was speaking about schools, a lot about schools, about critical race theory in schools, about uh, the democratic handling of schools during the COVID uh, pandemic, especially last year when most schools were closed. And he used that language, which is completely related to the language that white Americans used in the 50s and 60s when it came to desegregation after um, segregated schooling. It's was the removed. language of dog whistles, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so he dog whistled, but even this dog whistle was not as blatant as the busing dog whistle or the, the Jim Crow dog whistle post, um, post Brown v. Board. This was even more subtle because it could have been related to COVID. It could have been related to school choice. It could have been related to public vouchers. It could have been related to critical race theory. So in this way, it's not race just beneath the surface. It's actually race beneath a number of different topics, um, but people hear from it what they needed to hear in order to, to um, vote for, for the Republican this particular election. So yes, not only does um, the current moment rhyme with our history, it is getting more sophisticated in doing so. And it, the, the rhyming is um, a little more subtle, but, but nevertheless, its effects are, are, are still quite present. Is that subtlety even more troubling? We've done a number of shows about the Nixon strategy. We've talked obviously endlessly about Trump, um, Reagan, and, and, and the strategy, and even uh, George Bush, his uh, Willie Horton moment. Um, should we be concerned, as you say, that the language, the dog whistle language is more sophisticated? Or might it be that black America and progressive America has just become so sensitive to anything mm -hmm that it's always interpreted in terms of the dog whistle. Yeah, and so this is one of those instances where even the question of whether something is a dog whistle is in and of itself a kind of dog whistle. If one were to look at um, Glenn Youngkin's campaign in the state of Virginia for governor um, and see only him talking about critical race theory as a way of appealing to white Virginians to stoke their racial resentment to vote against Democrats, then um, one might say you are basically finding something that's not there. You're hearing a dog whistle of racism that that didn't exist. And of course, the, the opposite argument can be made that um, people who think Youngkin was just making these very base appeals to parents on behalf of students could also be saying you're being ignorant to the or you're, you didn't hear the whistle that he was very clearly playing. So it's, it's kind of paradoxical here. So on, on one hand, it is a good development 
in the United States that people can't explicitly say racist things and pay no penalty for it. So the by the shame and the stigma that comes with being an explicit, blatant, overt racist um, is such that the dog whistle became the coping mechanism for politics and talking about race without ever mentioning it. That is a positive development, I think. I would I I don't think it's I think people who behave in explicitly racist ways in public should pay a social penalty for it. But what it also means is when the dog whistling starts happening or this whistling gets muted by several different layers of, of other issues, then it's harder to call out that the person is trying to stoke race, racism or racial resentments in hopes of gaining power. It's also more difficult to prosecute it in places of, of um, in like courtrooms to say that this is racist hate speech or in, in, uh, in other methods around like uh, election administration, you know, the 15th Amendment says that you, you can't deprive people of the right to vote based on their race. And so explicit racists make it very clear they don't want people to vote because of the color of their skin. But the dog whistles make it very hard to pin one's, um, you know, passage of laws or set of regulations or campaign tactics as being racist on, um, you know, intentionally or, or with malice uh, um, in their hearts. And so the dog whistling does make it more difficult. But if the alternative is excusing explicit racism so that we know who those people are, I would prefer the difficulty of the of, of tackling the dog whistling to um, having a society that does not penalize racists for being racist. Ted, what do you make of the current debate? I think it's quite a heated one within the African-American or progressive community about all this stuff. I was watching MSNBC last uh, night and John McWhorter was interviewed about his new book, Woke Racism how a new religion has betrayed uh, black America. I had Randy Kennedy, the, mm -hmm. um, sorry, the, uh, I had Randall Kennedy uh, on the show recently. Um, uh, this is not Randall Kennedy. I had Randall Kennedy on the show recently, um, who I think is very much in McQuarter's camp. Has the woke movement, and I use that word carefully, I'm not a great fan of the language uh, of the word, but has a portion of the progressive community gone too far in interpreting everything in almost religious or semi-religious terms as racist? Uh, so, I mean, one, there, there's a point about the rhetoric, the word choices they use, and then the sort of purity that's associated with those word choices. Um, that could certainly be held up to question, especially, I mean, defund the police is an example of, of how a slogan actually undermines the um, policy intent of the people who are, are behind it. But when it comes to sort of this, you know, this, this idea that everything boils down to race, um, it, I, I'm of two minds here. One, it is without question that race has been the primary uh, dividing line in our country since its inception. Um, I think it is the primary factor in our electoral politics. Uh, the Republican Party is getting exceedingly white and the Democratic Party is becoming increasingly the home of people of color. Um, I don't think that's a good development. It's racializing the parties in a two party system. That is essentially a kind of segregation that could, that is undemocratic. I don't think that's good. But I, but it is also true um, that racism is so central to the American story and, and how we have crafted the set of of structures that govern our society now, that you can point to just about any socioeconomic factor and find racial disparity, not because black people or people of color are less intelligent or less capable or less hardworking than others, but because the way our society is structured historically, 
um, it, it leads to disadvantages no matter where people, how much work or, or ingenuity they put into their, their own efforts. And so, so there's a way of talking about the way racism pervades everything in society without um, um, subjecting oneself to the accusation that they're calling everything and everyone racist. You know, the United States is racist. White people are racist. Therefore, the whole thing is broken. That that is that is the leap of logic people make when um, when the the opening argument is everything is determined by structural racism. So there there is a way to talk about the issue without giving folks that um, the, the, a bridge to build between the two. But it is very very difficult. And the the last thing I'll say on this though is if you try to make the nuanced detailed, informed argument about the way race influences our society. There is not, perhaps your listeners, folks that read lots of books, folks that are engaged in, in uh, real deliberation about the fate of our democracy would care, but the average person um, doesn't, it doesn't stick with them. They, they're looking for the bumper sticker. And it's easier to say you're either racist or anti-racist, that America is either a fair nation or a racist one, than it is to have the more complex conversation that we've got some things right and we've gotten some things wrong. And so the, it's not just how um, sort of the activists are characterizing their work, but it's who uh, gets the microphone, who, who is given the platform in, in media and other places. And that often determines the caricatures that define how we talk about race in this country that are frankly not helpful on one side or the other um, towards getting to this better project of a multiracial democracy. I want to get to that better project, uh, Ted, specifically in terms of your book, When the, and the Stars Begin to Fall. Uh, but we've done a lot of shows about race in America, as I said. One of the books that comes up all the time is by the Swedish sociologist Gunnar Myrdal, um, An American Dilemma, mm. uh, about uh, uh, what, what in subtitle then was called The Negro, the Negro Problem and Modern Democracy. Uh, written uh, in 1944. How much has changed in the 75 years since Merdell wrote that book? Uh, well, so I think you could say that the economic prospects of Black Americans ha have changed in that time frame. Um, the political prospects have changed, um, but changed in a way that has created a kind of have and have nots within Black America, um, such that the median Black American is still discriminated against when they're buying houses, when they're going to college, when they're getting looking for promotions at work, um, in the hospitals, you know, again, so many of these racial disparities uh, impact so much of our lives that the median black person is getting a different American experience than a white American. And yet there are enough, there are far more black Americans today that are doing well economically, politically, et cetera, for the nation to be able to point at, if you say we're so racist, then how do we have a black president? Why is Oprah the most famous person on TV? Why is LeBron James, you know, a, a widely respected, um, um, you know, multimillionaire uh, basketball, you know, athlete? Uh, and so, so things have changed without a doubt. But if the idea was that the inclusion of black people in democracy would um, fundamentally alter the course of the nation in and of itself, if that's the idea, that has not come to fruition. The participation of Black folks in our democracy has not changed America's course dramatically. It may have changed some economic prospects for some, political prospects for some, but the nation is today pretty much what it was going to be 
um, 50 years ago and, and black participation has shaped it on the, on the margins, on the fringes, but it's not fundamentally altered the course. And not only that, but the increased participation of people of color in particular, because people of color are more likely to vote for Democratic candidates in congressional, gubernatorial, and senatorial and presidential elections, then now the way Republicans can hold on to power is by shaping the electorate in a way that makes it more difficult for those people of color to participate. And so a nation where democracy addresses the ills um, of racism would not suffer politicians using the arms of democracy to keep people away from participating in it. And that is the state of things in America today. Not just, uh, I mean, look, we're still having conversations about voter fraud or the lack thereof in the last presidential election of states uh, looking to pass laws that would give the state legislatures the ultimate authority to overturn the will of the people based on the party in power in that state assembly. This, this is not a democracy that has solved the problem of race. This is a democracy that has evolved to uh, employ new tactics to, to shape who participates in our democracy in service of political power. Very briefly, Ted, because we've got to go to a, an intermission in a second. Going back to Chris Matthews' Great Canyon, is that chasm greater now than it's ever been? Hasn't gone away, as you say. Is it, is it greater now or less? Yes or no? No, it, it, no it, it's not greater. It's not greater. The, what we're experiencing today is not chattel slavery pre-1865. What we're experiencing today is not Jim Crow pre-1964. So while racism remains a major problem in the United States, we have gotten better, far better. And as a black man in 2021, I'm much happier being here than a black man in 1921 or 1821. And there's uh, there, that, that's beyond question. Well, certainly in 1821 or 1921, we wouldn't have this show. Uh, Ted Johnson, um, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back and talk specifically about your wonderful new book. So everyone, hold on a minute. We'll just have a break and we'll be back. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page. You can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are talking to Ted Johnson, uh, Te- Theodore R. Johnson, otherwise known as Ted, uh, has a wonderful new book out, When the Stars Begin to Fall. Um, Ted, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had another, well, you're not an academic, but an academic on the show, Maisha Cherry. Uh, she has an interesting new book out, The Case for Rage, again, about the African-American experience. And like you, she begins with the N-word. And the first time that someone used that word to describe her, and it created a great deal of rage for her. You begin your book with the same experience, but the result, I think, is less than rage. Um, perhaps you might repeat the uh, the experience that you describe at the beginning of the book and explain why you put it there and its significance. Yeah. Yeah. So I think most black people have this story uh, of the first time they were called uh, the N-word in anger, especially um by, by someone of, of a different race. And for me, it happened when I was 12 years old. Um, and, you know, I was um, walking to school with my friends. I lived in North Carolina. It was, I lived in a mostly white neighborhood and most of my friends were white and, and the school was within walking distance. But um, on this day, a new kid had moved to town more recently and decided to walk with us that day. And he was a black kid. And as we were sort of walking, making our way to school, one of our, you know, one of the other kids from the neighborhood sort of hiding behind a, a, a hedge of bushes yells out, you know, all black people are the N-word. And um, I remember immediately, uh, you know, hearing it, not being in disbelief. This wasn't common practice in, in our neighborhood. But the first thing I did was sort of look to my white friends uh, almost in, in disbelief as is to say, did you hear what I just heard? Or, or did I hear that right? What, you know, the, that word. And they just sort of gave, they, there was nothing for me there. There was no um, what, or there was no um, you know, sort of anger or, or anything. They were just sort of looking at me to see how I was going to react. Meanwhile, the, the new black kid in the neighborhood had already darted off to go uh, challenge this, this boy who had yelled the, the word out. And in that moment, I felt like the right thing to do was to be in solidarity with the other person who this word was directed at. And it wasn't my white friends that I had known for years, but it was this new black kid. And only by virtue of this racial hatred, this slur, had I suddenly found commonality with him. Um, and, and, and we decided to go do something about it. I included that at the top of the book to, to signal how sometimes being um, confronted in situations causes us to find solidarity with people who we may not otherwise have found it with. And how that kind of solidarity especially when it's for a cause of equality or justice, can be marshaled to make a neighborhood, a community, a school, or a nation a better place. So I included it there not to show that there was racial tensions in my neighborhood, um, but to signal the kind of solidarity that could be realized, even with people we don't know well, when we recognize that there's there's a, a moral cause or, or a, a cause of injustice that compels us to do so. And frankly, I think that's the opportunity before the nation now. 330 million people, we're not going to know one another. But when there are instances of injustice, when people are being unfairly excluded from the right to vote or from housing opportunities or job opportunities or whatever, then it's incumbent upon all of us to bind together to hold the state accountable 
for being in breach of the social contract. Yes, uh, the the book, um, When the Stars Began to Fall, it's a a wonderful title, uh, Ted. And it's a title that reflects the kind of solidarity you're talking about. Explain where you got the title from. Yeah, the title comes from a a, a stanza, uh, a verse in a song that enslaved Black people used to sing um, in the 19th century. And the full, I think this, the whole verse kind of goes, um, my Lord, what a morning, my Lord, what a morning, my Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall. Um, this is one of the 10 sorrow songs that Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois talks about in the souls of black folk. And um, I, I was just sort of reading the book for inspiration and came across this line there. It means a couple of things. One, the reason enslaved black folks sung, sung this song was one, they were trying to cover mask their desire for emancipation, for liberty, for freedom. These were things they were forbidden for sing, from singing about while enslaved. And so they would cloak their desire for freedom in these Christian themes that slave owners were okay with them singing about. So ostensibly, When the Stars Begins to Fall is about, in Christian theology, when the rapture happens and the souls of believers sort of ascend to heaven to live you know, in peace and joy happily ever after. But what they're actually singing about is the desire for their freedom here on earth to be liberated and emancipated from the institution of slavery so that they can be real and true Americans. And this is the choice we have before us. Um, Either we confront the problem that racism poses to the ideals that this nation was founded on, or we will lose this, uh, uh, you know, the opportunity to create a multiracial democracy, one that's not been seen on this earth before. And so the stars will either fall out of the sky as we fall short of the promise, or they will fall into place as we finally realize the the the, um, the goals and aspirations and ideals that are are uh, founded are found in our founding documents. Yeah, you bring up W. E. B. Du Bois, perhaps the greatest of all nineteenth-century, if not twentieth-century Americans, um, and 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 the shadow of Du Bois, I think, affects the book both in an intellectual sense given his theory of doubleness. And he also uh, explains your name, doesn't he? Without Du Bois, we would have no Theodore, uh, what's your middle name? Theodore R. Roosevelt. And the, uh, whoops, Theodore R. Johnson. That was a Freudian era. Um, The R, of course, stands for what, Ted? Yep, for Roosevelt, for Roosevelt. This is a name, I'm Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III. My grandfather was Theodore Roosevelt Johnson Sr. And he was named after... The, the president, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. That's right. A rich white New Yorker. Um, and my sharecropping great-grandparents in Jim Crow, South Carolina, named their child after the, the former president at the time. Um, the reason was because uh, shortly after Teddy Roosevelt becomes president, after McKinley is assassinated, um, the next month in October of 1901, he invites Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner. And this was the first time ever a black man had dined socially with the president and first family in the White House. And when news got out about this, a lot of people were very angry about it. Booker T. Washington was widely respected. Um, even among many whites in the South, they respected him. Uh, Booker, Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois, to your point, had a, a long running battle about the best way to yeah, advance. Yeah, it was sort of like a, a, a Malcolm X, Martin Luther King kind that's of thing. That's right. That's right. 
That's right. And so, so, so what happens is um, while a lot of white Americans were very upset at the idea of this dinner because it sort of implied there was a social equality between the races, a lot of black Americans were inspired by it because it suggested that perhaps one day the promise of America would be available to them. And my great grandparents were so inspired that instead of naming their third son after Booker T. Washington, the well-known black educator, they named him after the sitting, the, the former president of the United States um, because of their belief that perhaps one day the nation would, would welcome their children or offspring in the way that it had done white children for, for many generations. And so I think they would have been pleased to see where the nation is today relative to the one that they were, they were born into and grew up in and still recognize that there's uh, quite, quite a ways to go before the promise that we all still hold um, some faith in is, is realized. Ted, let's fast forward to today from Booker T and Du Bois and Teddy Roosevelt to politics in Washington, D.C., uh, where you live near. Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi today tells the Democrats she wants to a vote on the infrastructure plan today. Uh, well, the build back better on Thursday and infrastructure on Friday. I don't quite know the difference between build back <laughs> better and infrastructure. That's Nancy Pelosi language. Um, when it comes to overcoming racism and renewing the promise of America, how much of that is bound up in initiatives like the um, infrastructure bill of, of making life fairer, of doing mm. away with some of the profound inequities um, between white and black America? We began the show with uh, a quote from the Post about loss on top of loss on top of loss in um, in COVID America for their for the nation's communities of color. How much is the government, and, and you talk about this in great detail in the book, When the Stars mm -hmm. Begin to Fall, how much is the state, the U.S. state, responsible for confronting these profound inequities, realizing the promise of America? Yeah, the, the state is responsible for guaranteeing the promise. That, that's, that's its job. The, the, the state in, in the social contract, it delivers security, it delivers prosperity, uh, and it delivers stability. And when it doesn't deliver those things to one group um, more than others, uh, or, or when it delivers it less to one group than others, that is a failure of the state, not a failure of the people, uh, of the people who have been subjected to this, this disparity. So here, here's what I would say. Uh, both the Build Back Better, infrastructure bills, the Freedom to Vote um, Act that Senate is, is thinking about in terms of um, democratic institutional reforms, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, all of these things um, should be leveraged to make our nation more just and more fair, to level the playing field. Um, what is happening is that uh, a lot of the historic policy, historical policies that the nation has had has created injustices, has created inequalities that the state has not sufficiently addressed. Um, it's easier to pass a law that says you can't discriminate uh, when it comes to voting and then declare that everyone is now equal and eligible to vote and ignore the damage of the previous hundreds of years of policy, at least you know, uh, uh, 200 years of policy from 65 back to you know, just before the nation was founded that, that um, created the kind of democracy we have today. And so you can say everyone has the right to vote. In fact, we did that in, in the 15th Amendment. And within a decade, 
black men were being beaten and completely disenfranchised with poll taxes and literacy tests and, and grandfather clauses and all these sorts of things. So laws in and of themselves are not enough to reshape a nation. It requires a change of character. And that character change is led by public policy, and that requires a uh, the nation state to get involved. Look, if we if we want to claim the, the mantle of being a nation where we're all created equal, where we have all these unalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and where the, the government derives its just power from the consent of the governed, then we require a nation that is willing to extend those rights and privileges of citizenship to all of its people, no matter their race or ethnicity. And if the structures upon which this nation is built continually creates outcomes that produces gaps between people of color, especially black people and white people, then we need to revisit the structures or or you believe that black people are less capable of succeeding in America and, and are more interested in a politics of grievance. If you subscribe to the latter, then I would I would ask you to visit. The, the politics of white uh, of white working class and, and, the, and white indigent parts of our society, and you will see a the kind of grievance policies you or politics you're ascribing to one group, you will see being practiced in another. The actual problem is we have a nation that is geared towards helping those with power maintain it, and help and and ensuring um, a a kind of social order that doesn't disrupt the power structures in our country. That requires uh, action by the state, and the only way our state is going to take action is if the people demand it. And uh, until we can find a multiracial solidarity uh, on the on for the toward the cause of of justice and equality for all, then uh, the, the state is not going to be as responsive to the demands of the people as as it should be. Multiracial solidarity, uh, Ted uh, Ted Johnson is calling for. Uh, what happens if we don't get it, Ted? Uh, Vanessa Veselka has been on the show recently, one of America's top fiction writers, talking about the imminence, perhaps, of an American revolution, a multiracial revolution. We've talked about labor solidarity, people going on the streets. Are you fearful about the future of America if these, if these issues are not dealt with squarely, aggressively? Um. So this is a hard question. So one of the distinctions I I make is between the United States, the geopolitical entity, the nation state, and America, which I see as the embodiment of the ideals I've just talked about, the promise of America, about equality, liberty, opportunity, et cetera. Uh, and so it is without question that if we don't address the class and racial inequalities in our country, that the ideals of America will not be reached. That it, it, In fact, we may take steps away from causes of freedom and liberty if we don't address these inequalities. But the geopolitical entity known as the United States may carry along just fine with inequality. I mean, it, it lasted for quite some time with slavery uh, sanctioned by the state. It lasted quite some time with uh, with vigilantes depriving people of their constitutional rights and, and the state not providing those protections. So will the United States collapse if we don't address these problems? That I don't know. But will we become the more perfect union? Uh, definitely not. The problem is, um, as one group of folks struggle to become a more perfect union, and the other group struggles to commandeer power within this nation state, often what accompanies this tension is violence. And I don't think there'll be another civil war or anything like that. But political violence is a um, is is a real possibility. Uh, well, we've already had still... the political violence. It's yeah. it's in well, the headlines. So uh, exactly. I, I think for people who worry about the future of America, who want 
the country to realize its promise. Uh, Theodore R. Johnson's When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America's Essential Reading. It's also beautifully written, very personal. It's not policy speak like a lot of these kinds of books. And it's not an angry book. It's a very, no, not at all. It's a very it's... reassuring book that everyone can read wherever you are and whoever you are. So, Ted, congratulations on the book. What Thank else should you. people be reading uh, these days? Everyone wants the advice of wise men like you. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say um, one good book is called The People's Constitution by John Cowell and Wilfred Codrington. And they talk about the moments in American history where the Constitution has been amended, uh, usually as the nation tries to become this more perfect union. And it, it's a, a historical synopsis of, uh, of these major moments in our history. Uh, another is of someone we've been talking about here. It's The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. Um, my favorite book of all time and gives you a real insight into the Black experience in America, where a lot of those things still translate into today. And then the last thing, uh, the last book I would recommend is Alienated America. Um, and this is a book that uh, talks about how as people leave rural areas, mostly white areas, um, how those uh, the unmooring from those local institutions and from community have manifested in ways that are harming white communities and um, and also contributing to undemocratic um, impulses across the country um, that you know folks have typically associated with communities of color, but we're seeing happening in rural America. All of this to say, um, we are in this together. Uh, there is no set of problems specific to any one group of people. We are all uh, sort of. Um, dissatisfied with the government we're, we're getting. And so it's incumbent upon us to come together and, uh, and and make government live up to its promise. Good stuff. Great book. Uh, congratulations on the book, Ted. We'll have you back on the show. You're a wise man. We need more wise men like you. Keep well. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks everyone for watching. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.